Hey, I'm Pastor Dave. Welcome to the Lighthouse. We hope the Lord speaks to you today by his word. God bless you. And I will greet you as I always do. Good morning, Lighthouse Church family. So last week when we gathered, uh, I expressed my sincere excitement about being given the opportunity for the first time to speak on consecutive Sunday morning services. I had heard many pastors who had preached on a a biblical theme or or dissected a book of the Bible for a couple weeks in a row, something we know by the term sermon series. Now it is also possible that when we think of a sermon series, we may think of a long-winded preacher who could not get through his or her message in the allotted time, and so they're forced to finish their sermon over the next week, or couple weeks, or couple months. Kids are dismissed. I always forget. I always forget to dismiss the kids. So the kids, go, uh, go enjoy your, your time together. However, it is, it is clear to me that when a pastor, a preacher, or a teacher asserts their intention to share a sermon series, their main goal is not to see how long they can stretch out a few pages of writings, but to delve into a topic or to bring a magnifying glass to a theme in scripture. They they most often feel urged by the Holy Spirit to illuminate these themes, these, these topics to the congregation And often these messages are timely, informative teachings that help bolster the entire body of believers around a thought or a goal, and it directs the church to respond to the word accordingly. Take, for instance, Pastor Dave's sermon series from this year, The God of the Harvest. This was intended to direct the believer to view God's heart for evangelism and salvation of the unbeliever and align themselves with his desires to be united in the purpose of being laborers in his vineyards, especially in the last days. I've heard many sermon series, and and as a pastor who is new to this, this thing of formal ministry, it felt like a feather in the cap of many preachers and teachers that I was finally being afforded. After all, it's hard for somebody to speak on the same theme once every six weeks while still retaining the church's congregation's interest. And even if that series was only a two-part mini-series, you will not take this away from me. This is a series. And so now, after being directed by Pastor Dave prior to last Sunday's service to consider centering on this this concept of, of membership, being that last week was our membership acceptance service, I had shared with him that the Holy Spirit was already prompting me to look into a passage in 1 Corinthians around that very theme. You must know that whenever I speak, uh, Pastor Dave provides me with the freedom to share that which the Lord puts on my heart. And whenever Pastor Dave tells me to consider a certain theme, he always finishes by, by reminding me of the same thing. And so he will come to me and say, with the worship, or membership acceptance service being next week, you, you may want to consider sharing around the theme of membership. Just a thought. But as always, if you hear from the Lord, go with that. And not by coincidence, it almost always lines up with the word that God has already said in my heart. And last week, that word which was given and subsequently preached was centered upon the theme of the body of Christ. One body which is built up of many parts, or as we learned, as Paul states, many members, each filling their role to the benefit of the whole of the body, and ultimately doing their part to the glory of God. 
Notably, this word was also in line with the word that was provided to Pastor Dave for 2023, being all that we can be to the glory of God. Much of what I attempted to accomplish in the sermon's construction and and preaching was that we must have this biblical concept, this, this understanding of the value and importance of the body, whilst also aiming to highlight the biblical concept of submission that we must have one to another. If you haven't listened, I would go back and give it a listen on, on YouTube or, or on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts, as it will help to bring inspiration and cohesion behind the message that I'm speaking today. You see, you may have left last week's service thinking, I'm so excited to be used by God. I finally realized my purpose is to be within the body of Christ, to be using my gifts and talents for his glory, to lift up others and and to spur them on, to to finish the race and, and to spur them on to a faith and to show God's goodness in how he has poured out his spiritual gifts on me. Or perhaps you left and you were asking, I know my place is within the body, but what is my role? What are my giftings? Am I a hand or, or am I a foot? What are the gifts that God provides us? And how can I know my role in the body in light of them? Thankfully, in the chapter that we led, uh, read from last week, the passage does not just speak of the body of Christ conceptually, but practically as well, pointing to the ways that the body should be functioning within the gifts of the Spirit. Today, as we read the remainder of 1 Corinthians 12, which you can turn to in your Bibles, we hope to bring understanding of our role within the body to its entirety. As we have learned, the body is not just made up of many members, but it is best represented with each part doing their role, each doing their part within their own gifting, within their own talents, that we would be a church that is alive, that is set on fire by the power of the Spirit, the living God who is operating in and amongst us. As it's stated throughout the entirety of the New Testament, it was prophesied from the times of Isaiah and even dating back to the time of Moses when he said, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Which was stated by the Lord's servant, dating all the way back to Numbers 11.29. Scholars date the book of Numbers as having been written 16 centuries before the, the first day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples. 16 centuries prior to, Moses spoke of a day when each and every member of God's body would have his spirit poured out upon them. And following this famed day of Pentecost, which has become the namesake for our denomination of believers, celebrating the descent of the Holy Spirit onto the disciples, the Holy Spirit had begun to quite literally spread like wildfire or in this case, Holy Spirit, fire, igniting churches and believers across many nations. However, one of the churches that seemed to have missed the memo on the way that the Spirit was intended to function properly were the Corinthians. Not to say that the Spirit wasn't visible in their church, but that it wasn't functioning properly. Properly being the key word. We have seen in our study of 1 Corinthians 12 so far that These were a a primarily prideful people, boasting in their own ways and in their own giftings. They were continually prejudicial 
and predominantly, as predominantly the way was among the Jews and the Gentiles prior to their salvation. And perhaps worst of all, Paul says that they were ignorant. Paul throughout this letter that, that we have read from called 1 Corinthians has taken them to task. Paul has been taking these Corinthian people to task for all of their flaws, many of which I have not read. But for this matter of this chapter, what is vital to our understanding is their ignorance in specific. As it pertained to the gospel, sure, but especially toward the Holy Spirit. From 1 Corinthians 12, he begins to write in in, uh, verses 1 to 3. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Paul begins to write on this subject regarding the Holy Spirit as the source of all gifts. Paul is introducing his his theme for this chapter in a manner that we shall say is intended to shock his audience. Paul, as we see, is is moving from his lambasting of the Corinthian church's many imperfections and is now going to speak concerning spiritual gifts and their imperfect, ignorant understanding of it. Interesting note for for those in the audience, the word gifts, when we speak of spiritual gifts, was actually added later by translators. Literally, when Paul was writing, he, he wrote to them addressing spirituals, not spiritual gifts, but he just called them the spirituals. After discussing all the areas of, of the Corinthians' carna- or carnality, Paul warns them not to go back to their ignorance as they were when they were Gentiles, but instead they should not only be aware of, but be reverent toward these things which he called spirituals. Translators would come to add the word gifts, as is justified by the context. As we know in other writings, they are described as gifts from God, namely 1 Peter 4.10, which says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve another as good stewards of God's varied grace. He is telling them, I do not want you to be ignorant. The Corinthian Christians are given a reminder that it is good for us also to hear. Perhaps we are ignorant regarding spiritual gifts, and and, and we should not be. Paul, in his letter, names three things that he does not want Christians to be ignorant of in in his many letters. The first is found in Romans 11, 25, where he says, Do not be ignorant of God's plan for Israel. The second we find here in 1 Corinthians 12, 1, do not be ignorant of the spiritual gifts. And the third and final is found in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, when he says, do not be ignorant about the second coming of Jesus and the eternal state. Sadly, many Christians are, are still ignorant on these exact points. Hopefully by addressing the second of these three today, we can grow much closer to an understanding of the spiritual gifts that God provides to his people and their importance in understanding our role within the body. Paul writes, you know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols. First of all, ouch, Paul, ouch. Not precisely politically correct language that we would hear today in in 2023, but Paul wasn't aiming to be politically correct. He was aiming for shock factor. 
He's saying, hey, remember how stupid you were when you used to go to those idols that people told you to, to go and praise and worship? Let's try to avoid that this time around, huh? How about, how about we get educated on the things of, of the spiritual? Paul wanted the Corinthian Christians to remember that their past of pagan idolatry did not prepare them for an accurate understanding of spiritual gifts. He did not want them to be ignorant but because they were Gentiles, they came to this matter of spiritual gifts as ignorant. When our past teaching and experiences have built up a poor understanding of the Holy Spirit and gifts, it is easy for us, too, to take our materialistic or our superstitious views into our understanding of the spiritual gifts. To be dismissive or, or to be willfully ignorant towards God's beautiful desires for his people. Not to say that we are all willfully ignorant, each having their wrestling with this, this, this subject of the spiritual gifts. But Paul is writing with the intention, not to, not to say that you should not wrestle, but that you should not wrestle ignorantly. He goes on to say in, four, in verses 4 to 6, there are di diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works in all. The important thing to note from this passage is that there are diversities of gifts. Paul will go on to list some nine spiritual giftings in this entire uh, chapter. In the following verses, and, and he will go on to share more in other places as well. There is indeed a diversity of gifts, yet... Paul writes, there is only one giver. There is only one who works through the diverse gifts. Diversity of gifts, the same giver, the same spirit. So we begin to understand, okay, these gifts, they are diverse. The ministries, they are different, and the activity is varied. And yet it is all the same spirit, the same Lord, the same God who is at work through each and every one of the many gifts the many ministries, the many activities, the needs, the people, the denominations, the congregations, all unified by God's miraculous power manifest by his Holy Spirit and his giftings at work. I've spoken before on the topic of the Holy Spirit, and the one thing that I remember asserting about this passage was regarding the way that we begin to seek the Holy Spirit can at times be ignorant you often hear a brother or sister who is Holy Spirit-filled encourage those who are not filled to seek the gift of tongues. I believe this is a misunderstanding of the way that we seek the Holy Spirit. You see, the spiritual gifts are not described to us as Boy Scout badges. We do not go out to get our, our speaking in tongues badge, and, and then we, we make sure that we also get our prophecy badge and, and, and our discernment badge. No, Paul tells us that it is the Holy Spirit that gives as he see fits to those who seek and earnestly desire the greater gifts. He tells us that we do not, uh, that as we seek the same God who works in all, much will be given in broad and diverse giftings, ministries, and activities. Stop worrying so much about getting that gift of tongues or getting that gift of prophecy and just seek the Holy Spirit. Seek the Lord and he will, he will give. It says that all who seek him shall find. The spirit that provides these spirituals, as Paul would put it, or the one who gives spiritual giftings, is the paraclete. 
Not a simple gift to be sought after as we would seek after a thing, but a person of the Trinity, living, breathing, and to each who would receive him, he is also walking alongside you. We at times come to the altar seeking a healing or or for a touch of the Spirit when we need it, and then we go on our way. And there is nothing wrong with coming to the altar. Let me be very clear in what I am saying. If you need healing, come to the altar. Be anointed by the elders. That is biblical, and it is a command. But I called the Holy Spirit by name, given in Scripture by Jesus. This name, Paraclete, is the one who walks alongside you always, not just at that altar, not just in that time of prayer where you need to receive that gift. He goes alongside you in life. He advocates to you, or for you to the Father when you have no words to speak and no leg to stand on. We must stop being ignorant toward the Spirit and His gifts by going about seeking for His gifts as a byproduct of, of simple faithful prayer, and we must begin to seek Him in faithful relationship. To desire to be fully enveloped in the will of God by seeking him continually in that faithful prayer and in relationship with him. At the altar, yes, but also by your bedside, morning and night. What we don't always remember is that the disciples didn't just pray for the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. That was the culmination of months of prayer in the upper room, praying for the Holy Spirit because guess what? It was promised by the Messiah when he departed. He said, I will send to you the paraclete. And they said, okay, Jesus said it. He's not a liar. I believe his words and I will go and I will wait upon the Lord until he delivers his his promise to me. People talk a lot about faith, but when it doesn't come easy, our faith becomes tested and only those who remain faithful will receive that which Christ has promised. As Jesus stated, The cost of discipleship is that whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 27. Each of us would like to think that we are disciples, but it requires us to put in time and effort to continually bear the cross and to chase after Jesus morning and night, waiting upon the Lord to pour out his spirit on us. And to those who persist, this is a promise, a beautiful promise to you. If you will be persistent and chase after the Lord, he will pour his spirit out upon you. And it is a promise. And so we know that still thousands of years later, we are receiving a word like the disciples did to persist in faith for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the last days, to revive and to be brought to life with the Holy Spirit so that we too can see powerful works taking place in our daily lives until the Lord's return. But today's message is not solely about seeking the Holy Spirit, but understanding ourselves and our roles within the body in light of it. We see, as Paul has stated, there are gifts, ministries, and activities. What are the differences between gifts, ministries, and activities and the manifestation of the Spirit? All of these are gifts. Some gifts are activities. Miraculous events or outpourings at a particular time and place. Some are ministries, standing offices, positions in the church, leadership roles, opportunities that are given to begin to serve in in your local church. What Paul is addressing within these concepts of gifts, 
ministries, activities, prefaces the Corinthian church's tendency to be self-seeking. It is easy for us to focus on our own little area of gifts, of ministries, activities, and believe that those who are outside of those things are, are, are not really walking or, or doing the work of God because they're not serving in such a way. Yet the one God has a glorious diversity in the way he does things. We should never expect it all to be according to our own emphasis, to our own taste, to our own particular sense of what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. Now one last note before we move on from really dissecting only three verses and an entire chapter spanning two lines in my Bible. But I wanted to make note that Paul uses three terms. He says, Spirit, Lord, and God. This passage also declares the doctrine of the Trinity in a typical subtle New Testament flow. The gifts which are of the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus, and the Father God. There will be those who will challenge you as a Pentecostal or Protestant believer on your, your belief in the Trinitarian doctrine. Scripture may not use, always use the names that we use. It may not always say the Holy Spirit or it may not always say the things that, that, that we call the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But I can assure you, do not be confused, do not be blown by every wind of doctrine. Stand on the ground of the rock that all of Scripture points to a Godhead that is three in one. In verses four to seven, we will move on. Paul begins to address the varieties of the manifestations of the Spirit. Let us read. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, and to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Amen. Paul asserts in this section that the manifestation of the Spirit is given unto all seeking believers. And I will declare it boldly and proudly and undeniably this morning, we believe that the Holy Spirit is always present in and among Christians, which means that he is present here this morning with us. Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, may he abide with you forever. However, we as Pentecostals believe that at some times the Spirit's presence is a more apparent than others. Not that he isn't always there, but that we may experience the Holy Spirit in his fullness at the time of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. A good example of this understanding can be given within the worship song aptly named the Holy Spirit. The author records a request made to the Holy Spirit in their song, singing the lyrics, let us become more aware of your presence let us experience the glory of your goodness. You see, this biblical understanding comes from, from Paul. There are times when he may choose to manifest himself, that is to say, to make himself apparent to us. As stated, the Holy Spirit is not an activity. 
It is not a happening. The Holy Spirit is a person of the Trinity, moving as it deems fit unto those who would desire to experience the outpouring. However, we should never think of the Holy Spirit as more present when he is manifested through his gifts. The Holy Spirit is always present among believers, but at times he is more apparent through the manifestation of the Spirit. And so this thing of the manifestation of the Spirit, sometimes called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as Paul begins to mention different manifestations that the Spirit will provide, I will share for you the definition of each gift. And I will share a little about some, and and I will speak far less about a few others. Not because I am diminishing any gift, but as I felt led by the Spirit, I wanted to bring knowledge of some of the gifts. And I wanted to avoid uh, what is at times ignorance towards these gifts of the Holy Spirit. As I share, this is your job today. Begin to ask yourself, is this something that I have experienced in my own life when I have sought the Holy Spirit? And if not, and if you have never been filled by the Holy Spirit, seek him and you will quickly begin to realize that there are gifts that you have more of an inclination toward pointing to your role within the body. And I will share more on that later, but for now I want you to hear each gift. Hear about the beauty of each one, the magnificence to display the glory of God in unique ways, and and believe that you too will grow into these gifts of the Spirit yourself if you are willing and you are eager. Paul begins by touching first on the word of wisdom. This is the unique ability to speak forth the word of God, especially when it comes to an important situation. This is shown in in both Stephen and Paul, uh, versed in Acts 7 with Stephen, then Paul in Acts 23. They each stand before the Sanhedrin, a group of the religious elite, which is made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. And we see these moments when God provided the words to his servants to dispel their prideful arguments. This is a word of wisdom. Jesus displayed this perhaps more often than any in scripture, dispelling lies and and leading questions that were intended by the Pharisees to cause him to stumble, and he answered perfectly with a word of wisdom that came from the Lord. Paul then speaks not of a, a word of wisdom, but of a word of knowledge, a separate gifting than the word of wisdom. This is the unique ability to declare knowledge that could only be revealed supernaturally as shown in Jesus uh, in Matthew 17, 24 to 27 or Paul in Acts 27, 10, 27, uh, 23 to 26. If you want to look up those references later, they they point to a word of knowledge. But consider that uh, those moments, I don't know how many here have experienced it, but I have in my own life where somebody comes up and says something that they could never have possibly known. Hey, I I just feel like the Lord is telling me to tell you that it's gonna be okay with with your sister. Hey, hey, I I know that you're struggling financially. The Lord is just telling me that uh, provision is coming and and he's told me to to give you uh, uh, this sum of money, but, but provision is coming. And how could you have possibly known what was going on in my life if it were not for the Lord providing you a word of knowledge? But we will do well as Christians to understand the difference between the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. One may have great knowledge, even supernatural knowledge that they could not have had in their own human reasoning, 
and yet they may have no wisdom from God in the application of that knowledge. That is a separate gift, knowing what to do or what to say in a given situation. As well, we must always use discernment, which is another of the spiritual gifts, whenever we receive a word of knowledge, remembering that God is not the only source of supernatural knowledge. Even if a word is true, it does not mean that it is from God, and it does not mean that the one who is speaking is truly representing God. And so you must have spiritual discernment, which comes from the Holy Spirit, the testing of spirits to know this is from the Lord, or this is not of the Lord. Paul goes on to write about also the gift of faith. Though, though faith is an essential part of every Christian's life, the gift of faith is unique. It is the ability to trust God against all circumstances. My favorite of these uh, instances is, is I often reference Peter when he walked out of the boat onto the water toward Jesus. That against all human reasoning, he had the faith in God to know that he could step out onto those waters and his Lord would keep him safe. Moments will come in your life where you will be tempted to be shaken in your flesh and in your own human strength. You could not possibly think to do what the Lord will call you to do, but he will say, I will provide for you. And you will have the faith in that moment to go and do the work of the Lord. The next that is mentioned is the gift of healings. This is, the, this is God's healing power either given or received. And it has been repeatedly documented in the New Testament and since. We have seen many such of these miracles in our own church. Not to confuse healings with miracles, another of the gifts of the Spirit. You see, all healings are miracles from God, but not all miracles are healings. There are miracles that take place in, in the life of the believer by the Holy Spirit, but it is not excluded and it is not limited to healings. So if all healings are miracles, why does Paul seem to mention them by name? Healing appears to be highlighted in Paul's list as it was so predominant in the church that for those who were sick, they were given uh, the, 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 this dismal healthcare uh, system in, in ancient Israel. If you are ever tempted when you are sitting in Emerge to be frustrated with the Canadian healthcare system, just thank your lucky stars. Thank the Lord uh, that, that you do not live in ancient Israel. For their predominant means to stop the spread of leprosy was to cast the sick into isolation. And so they went to the church and they flocked to the church en masse to receive healing. And the Lord provided. And he still does today. Because even with our, our phenomenal healthcare system, and, and you may have your opinions on it, with all the wisdom and all the knowledge of doctors, there are still some who, who will go to the doctor and, and not receive the care that they need. But we know that we serve the great physician who is faithful to heal, as is promised, that according to Jesus' death on the cross, that by his stripes we have been promised, our healing is assured, it is ready, and it is available to you. The next that is mentioned is the working of miracles, as I had mentioned which was described by Paul not as miracles, but literally translated from the word dynamis means acts of power. This describes when the Holy Spirit seems to choose to override the laws of nature that God has set in place, as a pilot may use manual controls. Working in or through an available person, he, he causes the laws of nature 
to be overcome. We saw many of these miracles in the life and ministry of Jesus when we looked to Scripture. For instance, turning the water to wine or the feeding of the 5,000 with just two fish and five loaves of bread. Now, I want to make a note on these three things, the gifts of healing, the working of miracles, and the gift of faith. They often work in conjunction. These things are not done on the whim of an individual. For who could ever think, I will put my rod into the sand and I will cause the sea to split? If they were not given first the gift of faith to know, I will take care of each and everything. Who would come with just two fish and five loaves of bread and say, I will feed these 5,000? They are not done on the whim of an individual, as if the power to heal or work miracles was at their permanent disposal. Instead, they operate as an individual prompted by the Lord and given faith to perform such a work. Paul goes on to write of the gift of prophecy, the telling forth of God's message in a particular situation, always which is in accord to his word and to his current work. Sometimes this has uh, the character of foretelling the future, as in Acts 21, 10 to 11, Acts 27, 21 to 26. Now, oftentimes, people who believe uh, this miraculous gift has been removed from the church wish to define Paul's writing on prophecy as preaching. This is common. Uh, uh, this is a common belief among some Christians, but let me assure you now it is inaccurate. There is a Greek word for preaching and a Greek word for divinely inspired speech. There are two words. So why would Paul choose to use the latter? Paul uses the word for divinely inspired speech. He does not use the word preaching. Although good spirit-anointed preaching will often use the gift of prophecy, it is inaccurate to, de to define prophecy as good preaching. The next he speaks of is the discerning of spirit, which I mentioned earlier. The ability to tell the difference between true and false doctrine. And between what is of the Holy Spirit and that which isn't. Satan appears as an angel of light. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.14. He deceives with a false tempting message, says Genesis 2.16.3-5. There can be lying spirits in the mouths of those who would come as prophets, says 1 Kings 22, 21 to 23, and 2 Chronicles 18, 20 to 22. Satan can speak right after God speaks, says Matthew 16, 23. Sometimes people who seem to say the right things are really from the devil, says Acts 13. It is important for us that we should test the word of God according to scripture, and according to the discernment that is provided by the Holy Spirit. For we know, according to the word of God, the devil will try to infiltrate the church with false teachers, as is written in Jude 4. How we need the gift of discernment in our church today, that each would be provided with the Holy Spirit to know that which is of the Lord. Now I'm going to touch on this topic for quite a while. Because this is the gift of tongues that he speaks on next. Something that is so widespread across our denomination and yet there is such little understanding. 
The gift of tongues is a personal language of prayer which is given by God, whereby the believer can communicate with God beyond the limits of knowledge and understanding. According to 1 Corinthians 14, 14 to 15. Language is an agreement between parties where it is agreed that certain sounds represent certain objects or certain ideas so that two may come to an understanding. And yet when the gift of tongues uh, is being used, we agree that God, as the Holy Spirit prays through us, understands what we say, but we do not always understand what we are praying, though God does. Tongues has a very important place in the devotional life of the believer. This is what Paul writes. But he also says that there is a unique place in the corporate life of the church, especially in public meetings. When tongues are practiced in the corporate life of the church, it is to be carefully controlled, warns Paul, and never without an interpretation given by the Holy Spirit. But we know that the gift of tongues is intended for the believer to have communion with God personally, to be edified and to be built up by his spirit. That is the intention of the Holy Spirit, gift of tongues. The gift of tongues is for the edification of the individual, but there is a unique application in the church. Many people believe that the gift of tongues died with the apostles. That is a very, very common thought among believers. Curiously, many of those who define the gift of tongues as merely the ability to speak in other languages for the purpose of spreading the gospel in other languages, which did happen. There are two terms, they are called glossolalia and xenolalia, one for speaking in the, the tongue of man and one for speaking in the tongue of angels. When you speak in the language of, of another, you may not understand it yourself, but it is God speaking through you in order to share a message with an individual. But far more often, when we think of the gift of tongues, we are thinking of xenolalia, the the gift of speaking in angelic tongue. But that need has not changed one bit in these days uh, of the the apostles. Instead, the Bible clearly says that the gift of tongues is meant for an individual's communication with God, not with man, as stated later in 1 Corinthians 14.2, where Paul writes, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to man, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. You see, even on the day of Pentecost, we must begin to recognize when the disciples spoke in tongues, they were not preaching to the crowd. Peter would be capable of preaching in uh, the Greek language, which was common to all who would be there. Rather, what we recognize is they were praising God speaking in their own tongues the wonderful works of God. And the crowd at the day of Pentecost heard the disciples excitingly praising God, and they began to mock them as though they were speaking gibberish. Often those who speak in tongues today are mocked by those who deny the gift with the accusation that, again, they are speaking in gibberish. But Acts 2 is wrongly used to support this because Acts 2 tells us that those that speak in tongues on the day of Pentecost, they were speaking intelligible languages understood by others, but it does not tell us that all of the 120 or so uh, tongues spoken languages could be understood. 
We should not assume that those who were immediately understood by the bystanders spoke gibberish, as tongues are referred to with derision. They may have praised God in a language completely unknown yet human. What would the language of the Aztecs have sounded like to the Romans? Or in a completely unique language given by God and understood by him and him alone? After all, communication with God and not man is the purpose of tongues, according to 1 Corinthians 14.2. The repetition of simple phrases, unintelligible and perhaps nonsensical to the human bystander, does not mean such speech is gibberish. And I can assure you of this today. Praise to God may be simple, repetitive. It is a part of the whole dynamic of what tongues is intended to be for the edification of the believer. That when you speak and you praise God, at times I, I find that I run out of words to give him glory. And I'll say the same thing again and again and again. God, hallelujah, you are good, you are worthy, you are powerful, you are magnificent. And then I begin to repeat myself. Because I can only come up with so much to give glory to God. And yet he gives me, by the Holy Spirit, the, the work of, of the advocate. The one who gives me words to speak when I have none left. And the one who gives me a leg to stand on when I don't have one that he advocates to me to the Father, and that he provides me with words to give worship that is glorifying and edifying both to my body and to the Lord. But I told you that there is a specific purpose for tongues when it comes to the church. And this is when uh, Paul speaks of the gift of the interpretation of tongues. This gift allows that gift of tongues to be of benefit for those other than the speaker, as they are able to hear and agree with the tongue speaker's words to God. This is most commonly spoken of in scripture for instances in which the gift of tongues is given during a time of church gathering. Paul states later in his letter to the Corinthian uh, church in, in chapter 14, in the church I had rather speak five words with understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. You see, this is due to that Corinthian church and their ignorance, their misunderstanding of the Spirit, that they would begin to babble. They would begin to speak each in, in heavenly languages and angelic languages, much to the confusion of unbelievers and new believers. He did not mean to say that you should not speak in tongues in church to diminish the gift of, uh, of interpretation of tongues, but to emphasize the practice of the interpretation of tongues, which often correlates with prophetic words given by God to be interpreted before the entire church to receive it as a whole, or for the purpose of the edification not just of the individual, but the edification of the entire body, that when one is worshiping God with these angelic tongues, they are being edified and they are being filled by the power of the Holy Spirit and they are operating in, in the gift of the Spirit, but rather than have just one be edified, the gift of interpretation allows each to know what is being spoken and being glorified to God so that we may all benefit and we may all be edified. This is what Paul is trying to tell us. Speak with understanding. Speak in, in tongues, but, but provide interpretation that we might all be edified one with another. Paul closes this section with the assertion 
that the Holy Spirit distributes to each one individually as he wills. Sometimes, in fact, much of the time, if not almost always, I find in my own life, the will and the wisdom of God is different than my will and my own wisdom. It is stated in Isaiah 55, 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord in Isaiah 55, 8. We should never assume that the gifts of the Spirit are distributed as we would distribute them. Why would Paul write this? You see, often we assume spiritual gifts are given because a person is perhaps especially spiritually mature. Or perhaps they have closer relationship with God. But this, Paul writes, may not be the case at all. We should never assume that giftedness, when it comes to the, the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, is connected to maturity. God can and does, for his own glory and purpose, distribute gifts to those that are not especially spiritually mature, those that are not necessarily always close to them. How do we know this? Look to scripture. Look at the ones that he chooses. He chooses the least of these so very often. Not, not to show or demonstrate. Look at the faith of, of uh, you know, Moses when, when he went to the burning bush and he, he led the people of his, out of Israel. This was the least of these. This was a man who could not speak for he had uh, uh, an impediment in his speech. This was a man who was not a born leader. This was a man who said, choose my brother, not me. And, Paul, and, and God chose him intentionally to reveal his own glory that to each who would see the works of Moses, they would not know the goodness of Moses, but they would know the glory of God. This is what Paul is trying to tell us in this section. Not to discourage spiritual maturity, not to discourage closeness to God, but to say that God can grant anyone remarkable spiritual gifts in a moment. But character and maturity they do take time to build. And while there is not always visible giftedness in the life of a mature believer, the character and maturity of the believer often shows up in moments of great need as faith is not always built up in a moment, but over time and the persistent pursuit of God. The passage also asserts that with these gifts of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit was and still is distributing them as he wills. Not always as we believe his will is for our role. I'm going to share with you a word. The word I want to close the teaching portion of this sermon with is the word tendency, which I promised I would touch on. To those who take notes, write this word down, tendency. Paul speaks of ministries, he speaks of gifts, he speaks of these inclinations and tendencies that we have towards certain ministries, certain gifts, these things that are common to man. In regards to these things called the spirituals, you will find you have a tendency towards serving in a given role. You will have a tendency in a certain ministry. You will have a tendency with the spiritual gifts that you find you have a strong affinity toward. I can assure you right now, this is not a bad thing. This is no, not a, a misunderstanding of the spiritual gifts. This is not a misunderstanding of our relationship with the Holy Spirit. Paul is telling us clearly 
for each have a part to play in the body of Christ, but we do not limit ourselves to those tendencies. We do not limit ourselves simply by our, our understanding of our part within the body. He distributes as he sees fit. You do not say, well, no, 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 I, I'm more of a prophecy and interpretation of tongues kind of guy or gal. Uh, if you need a healer, you got to go find Clarence. Or, or if you need a word of wisdom, you, you better go find Ange. Those are their tendencies. Those are their parts. No. That is not what Paul is trying to tell us. Rather, make yourself available to the Spirit of God and see how he deems fit to, to bestow his loving power upon you. As the ministries and spiritual tendencies are not the exclusive limitation of the gifts, Paul is teaching that the true gifts of, of the Spirit are opportunities to see how he will use his loving power in and through you. That is the true gift of the Spirit, that we would even have opportunity to be used by God. Those ministries, those, those opportunities, those activities, the things that he speaks of, each are a gift from the living God. Humbled we stand before the God of all creation who says, I will use you. If you see fit to, to, to look to me, I will use you. The body of Christ begins to see his loving power manifest in your life the more you make yourself available to him, a member of his body to which he is the head, saying, go, be the hands, be the feet. Well, God, I'm, I'm, I'm more of an ear, I'm more of a nose. I will use you, be available to me. We spent most of last week delving into verses 12 to 26, and so I will use today verses 27 to 31 as my benediction this morning to you all. Just as Paul did to bookend his word on the body of Christ, he says in verses 27 to 31, oh no, I haven't written it down, and I don't have my phone on me. You got it? Perfect. Perfect. He says in verses 27 to 31, let this be my benediction to you. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administration, varieties of tongues. Are all prophets? Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. You say this is an interesting benediction. The answer to that question more than likely is no, or, or is it yes? Your spiritual gifts and where you fit in the body of Christ is appointed by God. Instead of saying, I am not blank, we should rejoice in the gifts that God has given us to use. Each are unique. None are like the other. Being spiritually gifted to help administrate is, is not inferior to the gift of teaching, nor is your place in the body of Christ less significant. Without each one, without each role, the body ceases to function at its highest capacity. 
You see, we can respond to this passage by believing that the gospel is, is true. We can respond by believing in the gospel of Christ and repenting of our sin, of overvaluing or, or undervaluing ourselves, by assuming that our place in the body of Christ uh, is, is significant or, or insignificant. We can begin to respond to this gospel by instead assuming our place in the body of Christ, a member among many, each making up the whole. For if Jesus truly died for the forgiveness of sin, for any who'd place their faith in him, this means that you and I are brother and sister. That we may be people who are very different from one another. You may look at me and think, I'm nothing like that person. Or perhaps you, you look at me and you see yourself. Regardless of whether we are alike or different, Jesus uh, has, has made it clear that we are sons and daughters of Christ and Paul is telling us we are family. You have a place in this family of faith. You are not unessential and you are not so essential that everyone else around you is any more or less important. Each have significance to the living God. What you bring to the church is a gift that you receive from God, not something you earned, for God can take these gifts away in a moment. However, what Paul is really getting at, we can also respond by joining that church as a member, as a part. Instead of casually attending church, I encourage you, get connected. Be committed to that which the Lord has for you. For those who are not members, go through that membership process for it's not about the tedium of signing papers and attending seminars. It is about becoming one with the fold of the church gathering. And perhaps you became a member long ago and you're only now realizing the opportunity that has been afforded to you when you signed those papers many years ago. You are given the opportunity to become one with the fold of the church gathering, to partake in the fellowship of the saints. Get involved with, with our small groups. Get involved uh, with, with the church ministries serving the kingdom of God alongside your brothers and sisters. As we are in relationship, these things that seem formal become the things where we have opportunity to be one with one another, to exhort one another on, building one another up in faith. And finally, this is my prayer to you. I pray that you would come to know and adore your role within the body of Christ. That you would find places where you can love and you can serve one another. The believer and the unbeliever. That you would see how your giftings have been given to God by you for a specific and unique and beautiful purpose. Amen? Amen. Hey, thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the sermon. Just want you to know you can find full live stream services on our website, lighthouseniagara.com.